You know, we actually do know a lot about music. I don't know if you've noticed that. Welcome to 80s Music Exposed, the podcast in which we review all the best albums of the 80s, one month at a time. We will break them down, give you the skinny, and duke it out over whether you should or should not dig these back out again. If you are ready for an 80s music deep dive, from Public Enemy to Wham, Eno to XTC, Madonna, hair metal, reggae, and all points in between, then crank the boombox, turn the Walkman up to 10, and ooh, let's go. Now, from the kitchen, Chris and Henry. This is 80s Music Exposed. I'm Henry. And I'm Chris. And we're delighted to be back to talk about more records, and this time we're going to talk about August of 1980. Yes, August of 1980. We're almost halfway through, or we're more than halfway through, if my math's correct. With 1980. Will it top July? You know what's exciting about getting to August for me, Henry? What? Is I'm starting to look forward to our year, our end of 1980 show where we have to pick our favorite of the whole, for the list. whole year. Yeah. That's going to be hard, man. That's going to be a crazy Or r- really, I can, I can already see it starting to take shape right now. I say we do five. Yeah, five each or five out, out of all, what is, what's five times 12? Um, come on, don't put me on the spot. That's 60. 60, yeah. So each of us has to get um, five records out of 60. Oof. You got to pick them. It's going to be fun. And some, I think we're going to, unexpe- I think we'll have to confess to unexpectedly really liking. Yeah, and I think others, are, you're going to put on the list just because you think you ought to like it or it ought to be liked. Right. You know, like my criteria is, yeah, is getting weird, weird, man. My criteria, my criteria for liking music has gotten weird because I started listening to, you sent me, um, the new Zuzu song, which I'd only found out about, like the Zuzu, no, the Scissor song. A, it's a brand new, brand new band, or not yeah. a brand new band, but a, a modern. It's band. like I like them because they're irritating. You they're, know? they're. Um, I like refreshingly th- irritating. I like knowing that they exist. Yes, like it's do. important to me. To, but I'm not going to like listen to it over and over again. But it's like, what are these guys going to do now? What crazy thing could they possibly right. do to disturb me this time? <laughs> but what we're doing now is talking about August of 1980. Right. So we have some criteria which we use to pick uh, the LPs. Oh, let me do it this time. Let me do it this time. Let me okay. do it this time. Okay. So the first criteria is we went with. All the records that we could find on all music that had five stars. And that's pretty simple enough. And all yep. music is a website that claims to rate or review almost every record ever made. The second category are Grammy nominees. So if you were a Grammy nominee that year, we're going to review your record. The third criteria is selections from our from the history that we love. And then the fourth is Rolling Stone's year in top 25. I went back and tried to find... What Rolling Stone thought about the records then, not what they think about them now or not what Pitchfork or any of those uh, websites think about them. And we'll go back and look at all, all these records. I think one thing, Henry, that I've seen in some comments on Twitter and stuff is that when we talk about these criteria, mm-hmm. people think there's ands in between all those. So the records meet all four of those. Oh, yeah. And that's not the case. So there might be some of these that are <clears throat> Grammy nominees that didn't get a five star on all music. That that's just each one of these are an individual category, right? And they are self-selected, but but that's the criteria that we've used to try to self-select what we want to present to you. 
you know, yeah. on the pod. And we so. wanted to find some stuff that we hadn't listened to, and I think this criteria puts some stu- new stuff in. Yep. Anyway, so Henry, tell us about some significant events from August 1980 before we start hitting these records. Okay, Moscow Olympic Games. Uh, the closing ceremony, August the 3rd. We weren't there. Yeah, I think it's funny how those Olympic Games are just kind of non-existent in American culture, except that we weren't there. That's all we say about the <laughs> Moscow Olympics. Right. Nobody says, like, the world record was set in the long jump. I did make a note that unemployment back then was 7.1%. What is it today? Um, It's under 4 today. But But then you, it depends on who you talk to, because remember, there's that whole shadow people that don't want to work, that aren't oh, counted yeah. or whatever. Oh, yeah. The sinister. <laughs> they would have you believe it's really like 28% or something. But now that Trump's president, they probably think it's an honest four. But this is not a political show. <laughs> Cost of a first-class stamp was 15 cents. Are you, so you must not be getting Christmas cards. Nobody loves you at Christmas. I, You're think, not getting I think we get them. My wife, <laughs> and my wife uh, screens those for me. So I don't have to, <laughs> to make sure the unsavory characters <laughs> don't get through. One thing. Um, I don't like to see all these people bragging about how great their kids are. Oh, yeah. I know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy Carter beat Edward Kennedy to win, to win uh, the nomination at the 1980 Democratic National Convention in New York City. I mean, he was the president, so of course he was going to win. But do you think Ed, Ed looking back now, do you think Kennedy, Teddy Kennedy, would have beat Reagan? Obviously, Carter didn't. No idea. I don't think so. I think Chappaquiddick did him in. Uh, my, how the tables have turned, so that something like that sinks you, right? Well, he did kind of like get out of the car when a woman was drowning, and <laughs> leave her right. at the bottom of the river. Yeah, but supposedly. but. Hey, this is not a political hey, show. Hey, what well, about old Dorothy so Stratton? That was a thing. That was a thing. I only do you remember like any parts? Is Dorothy Stratton was an, a Playboy Playmate of the Year that was murdered? I'll tell you what I remember about it as a kid. It, the, the Playboy Playmate thing uh, didn't stick in my mind as much. Of I don't think Henry before that I'd heard of a murder suicide where her ex husband or whatever murdered her and then killed himself. Hmm. Like I never up until that point, I think I just thought murderers murdered people and tried to get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> and the idea of somebody taking themselves out—I mean, I'm sure it happened. And shit, really... But as, as in my ten-year-old uh, brain, if you murdered somebody, then you would try to get away and get out. If you yeah. wanted to kill yourself, you didn't murder somebody. Well, you for were like eight or nine. I yeah. just—you know—I was probably—I was eight months into being nine. But I had an older brother, so he was he probably, probably into the Playboy Play yeah, Made of the Year that part, part of, of it. it. Right. I was just like blown away. I can remember thinking, why does the murderer kill himself? He didn't even get caught yet. So he he uh, kills her and kills himself. Yeah. And that was a big deal. And that appara- was a big deal. Apparently a bunch of songs, I didn't make a note of this, but somebody you know, could check Wikipedia and see easily that there were songs written. I thought, and maybe I'm wrong, you can tell me if I'm wrong, I thought the movie Star 80 was about her. That's absolutely true. And here's another curious point. Which I was all about Star 80 as a kid, because I thought it was going to be a... Dorothy Stratton's uh, gravesite has a quote from Hemingway on it that, um, uh, it's a quote from A Farewell to Arms. And 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 Hemingway's granddaughter played her, right? Muriel, Muriel Hemingway, Hemingway played Dorothy Stratton in Star 80. That's weird. 
That is weird. That is weird. All right. So the first record we're going to talk about is one. It's called One Trick Pony uh, by Paul Simon. Now, my understanding is it's like the companion piece to what has been called, and I haven't seen it, what has been called sort of an art flick that depicts um, a character, a musician, ostensibly like somebody Paul Simon-esque or built or based on his experiences in the music business. And I'm told that Lou Reed plays the part of like a slimy sort of record producer guy who get him to make more commercial music or something like that. You know why you're told all this? Because the fucking movies disappear. Can you find it? I couldn't find it anywhere. I know it exists. I couldn't even find it to stream. It's one of those like that they buried in their archives. I don't know if it was Warner Brothers or... Uh, who put the film out? But it's like in their archive, and it's not. It interests me that Lou Reed's in it. It interests me that Paul Simon did a movie, but well, he's been in other movies, right? Well, no, but like he wrote, directed, and starred in this did film. He? Yeah, no, I didn't catch that. So let's play a track real quick before we get too deep. This okay. is a little bit of a song. I guess technically it was a hit off the record, but it's called uh, "Late in the Evening." Right. And I remember there was a radio coming from the room next door. And my mother laughed the way some ladies do. When it's late in the evening and the music seeping through. The next thing I remember, I am walking down the street. I'm feeling all right with my boys and with my troops, yeah. Yeah, Henry, the movie, basically, the plot of the movie is is very autobiographical. And I think, uh, to put it in context, at the time, you know, Paul Simon had done a bunch of, uh, he'd done like two or three already guest hosts of a young Saturday Night Live at this point. Right. And everyone realized he's fucking funny, and he's a good actor. Yeah. And so I think... I think he was he was in this crossroads of his career anyway, where he he was seeing things were changing and the folky acoustic mm-hmm. guitar thing was stopping. So he was like, he, the character is kind of autobiographical. It's it's a guy like him trying to come to terms with being commercial and cha- the industry changing. Also, there's this weird subplot about being a good father and a kid, but hmm. that probably for <laughs> we some, talk about that on another level. Yeah. But the weirdest thing to me about this whole thing is this album. When I looked at it. This thing, he's trying to pull off a studio album, a comeback album, a live album, and a movie soundtrack all in, all in one, one thing. There are like two live tracks on, on, this on the album. Is that, like, I, have, have you, I have a, no other record has done this that I know of. It's the first one I've come across. And I'm like, this thing is so ambitious to not work. 
Yeah. Um, and then on top so, of that, Henry, did you, he's trying to be a film. He's trying to write and direct a film. Did you feel like as you sat there listening to it, and I'm, I'm picking up what you're pick, what you're throwing down here, did you feel like you were sitting in on a Saturday Night Live segment for some reason? Like, I felt as I was sitting there, I said, this feels like circa 1979 kind of SNL or something. I don't know what about it. It it definitely had a it definitely had a that part and part of why I like this show it had a it had a feeling of 1980 that I had forgot that mm-hmm. whole um, Christopher Cross light yeah um, trying to transition man, from 70s pop to but that was somehow must have been the jam back then because I think it that was. there was a thread that seemed to sort of run th- maybe through a lot of that work of, of the time I don't know right I know that the guy that produced this was uh Phil Phil Ramone who did like a lot of these medium level folk type I don't know how to I guess soft rock people that I noticed. Right. I'm talking like Peter Paul and Mary maybe. That's sort of that's like for me, that's like way on the cheese side right. of folk music. But he had this it seems like of the records that I saw, he would take artists and make them the most palatable they could or something. Right. You know, right, right. like smooth out the rough smooth edges. Out the edges. Let's make it as professional and cool as we can or something like that. Well, I feel like it, it, it's such an ambitious idea for a record. And then to top it off, I read a review of it that I think nailed it for me. I think he really actually cared about the movie. And so the, the, the record sounds like there's a good record in there if Paul Simon had been focused on the record. Would we have liked it better if the movie... If the songs had been in the context of whatever movie we were seeing, I said I don't know. I, I don't think so because I think the reviewer I was reading also said that there's versions of these songs in the movie that aren't on the soundtrack record. The uh, Spotify has like the, the they re-released it and added two songs on it, the soundtrack versions of something. I didn't get that far. I stuck to the original version just to try to make right. it making an album judgment, but. Um, well, I, I get I get the feeling that I wasn't really supposed to like it as an album. That I was supposed to like it in the context of this mysterious movie. Well, episode. to me, I felt the I felt the movie and the record to me are crying out for somebody that thinks they're about to have a huge breakthrough and be a massive, who's already a star, but thinks they're going to be a massive, um, you know, like five tool athlete here. And actually, five years later, he is going to stumble onto something that's going to cause him to explode creatively in a new way. But I think he's reaching for that here and he hasn't found that new Avenue yet. But and he you... thought it might've been movies. He thought it might've been mm-hmm. uh, doing a live album and a soundtrack. album, And it all just kind of, to me, there's something missing to it. It's just a little bit flat. Yeah. But, but I can hear if I listen hard enough, I can hear the seeds of Graceland kind of start to happen somewhere. Right. Well, to me, it's like to me, and this this one to me is the crossroad. It's the I'm at the end of my folk rope. I really am reaching for this new thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the new thing is yet, but I'm ready for it. Mm-hmm. Hearts and bones. The next one to me sounds like I'm starting to hone in emotionally on what this new pop thing is. I'm leaving the folk behind, mm-hmm. and then he has, of course, the marital breakdown, and he just goes to Africa on a whim. And all of a sudden, he discovers, finds his muse, South American or South African music, and so, boom! Did you follow up with the next record? Yes. Was it better? I, I've always had a soft spot for 
and I hope I'm not calling it by the wrong name because I have in front of me Heart, Hearts and Bone. That's right. I looked. I remember. Reading I that. love. I I actually love that record. I think it's way underrated. I can't wait till we get to it because I think Graceland is so massive uh, in the Paul Simon lexicon yeah. that Hearts and Bones kind of get the left. In the you dust. and I somehow bonded over that record. Graceland is one of my why. top ten records of all time. It might I have been still, one of the first records you shared with me. I'm not sure though. I still find it just to be that hit me at the right time, uh, but. We'll talk Graceland yeah, forever yeah. when we'll get there. But this one, um, I can't recommend Henry just because I feel like it's a miss. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a guy as good as Paul Simon, if he had taken two mm-hmm. of the five elements he was going for out of this, it probably would have been a pretty good record. I have to I have to wonder, uh, you knew I'm not I'm not gonna let this go by without saying could Garfunkel have fixed it? Okay, so so just for a little backstory, <laughs> folks. When we met, I think I think Henry would have told you his musical lexicon was limited, but, but Simon and Garfunkel were the fucking yeah, jam. I don't think anybody who listens to this could tell me that uh, "Bridge Over Troubled Water" is not one of the best records. I just find your um, backing up of Garfunkel. All the time, like you're a strong Garfunkel guy. I, I love that. I'm a I'm a do proponent of a good a good harmony counterpoint. Do you remember this? Because I think it happened in 1980. I, I haven't looked it up, but mm-hmm. uh, Simon and Garfunkel did their concert in the park when yep. they got back together, mm-hmm. and it blew out the windows. I was watching that, going, how did how did they get a million people to show up for Simon and Garfunkel? <laughs> they were great, man. <laughs> Something about it. <laughs> So that mix worked. What are your thoughts uh, but, on uh, as to One Trick Pony? As a are you are you? Uh, it was kind of torturous for me. I have to admit. It. So you're not going to recommend it? N- no. Uh, wish I could. And I also want to say this real quick about it. I don't remember this record at all when I was a kid. I think I remember the Simon and Garfunkel concert more than I remember this. There's some scatting on it. I'm not a fan of that. And there's just the keyboards are kind of cheesy. Well, that was the other thing I was going to mention. If you do want to go back and really remember that weird '80s keyboard that a lot of folks had at the time, it's is it all the same? It's like the same. Because for some reason, I'm like, this is just torturous. I can't. This is the same. And it's that weird, really slow tempo, Christopher Cross kind of. I guess that's the feeling. Yeah. So um, no, that's two thumbs down. I there's think. even some horns on it in places. <laughs> Which and, you, you know, I don't like. Yeah, you into that. So. Uh, I will. Let, let's hear. I want to give you one positive okay. thing about it. Uh, Paul Simon's voice is smooth as silk, on and his song. lyrics. I mean, he's a really good. I mean, come on. Paul so Simon. if you listen to it in the headphones, uh, you'll the the young Paul Simon. But if you're if you're really if you're if you're wanting to go back and get into Paul Simon. Um, there's better records than this one. Yeah, maybe don't start there. Our next record, Henry, is called I Believe in You, and it's a country record, which we do occasionally. And this one is by Don Williams. And I'm going to play a part of the only song on here worth a shit called I Believe in You. <laughs> Of gold, the certainty of growing old, 
That right is right and left is wrong That north and south can't get along That east is east and west is west And being first is always best But I believe in love I believe in babies I believe in mom and dad And I believe in you Well I don't believe that heaven waits For only those who congregate You want me to go first on this one Henry or? Please Please. So I wrote up, I got worked up into a lather. I'm listening to this record, I, and I have to admit, I'm not a big country guy, so I don't know right off the top of my head who Don Williams is. I'm listening to this record, and I've got this whole thing written up about how this is basically Randy Travis in a different bow. It's that safe kind of country. like, And he, Don Williams is right on the forefront of where new country comes from. Like he's taken... He's kind of in the middle of like all the cool country guys and it's turning it into the commercial bullshit. And it sounds just like Randy Travis to me. And then the title track, I Believe in You, comes on and I'm like, oh shit, that's one of my favorite country songs ever. <laughs> I really love that one. I didn't know he wrote that. Fucking record's called I Believe in You. And I Believe in You is one of my favorite country songs. So... I am torn. I really hate this record, but I really love I Believe in You. I didn't catch I Believe in You. Um, Do you know that song? Like when you heard it, did you? I I don't know that it uh, resonated with me. something I remembered. No. Um, I, uh, I, as much as I hate to agree, because it's more fun when we disagree, I agree with you 100%. Uh, This was hard to listen to. And it's insidious because it's really well made. That's the problem. But it's, it, but it's like Hootie and the Blowfish well made. Yeah, but that's it what it reminds like me of. This band, if you let this band go, it sounds really like they got all the fucking elements. Some of the rhymes are dumb, and it's just like simpleton, easy breezy. Well, let me kind let me, yeah that that bothers you too. Like rub a dove in a tub kind uh-huh. of shit. But let me let me ask you this because this is the debate I really wanted to have about this. Doing my research on this record, what this guy did was. He got a bunch of fucking professional musicians that sound awesome. And he fucking found all... I keep saying fucking. I'm really mad at this record. <laughs> he found all these great country songwriters and went through all their songs and cherry-picked them for this record. Now, here's my here's here's where I want to debate with you about that. Yeah, okay. That sounds like a great idea, except I hate that idea. And should it color... What I think about a record if it's not written by the artist. So, like, why do I like Barbara Streisand's songs? She doesn't write any songs, does she? Barbara Streisand? Yeah. I've only read that she had writing credit on just a couple songs. Okay, well, we Wait, both touched in episode one over these songs that she did written by a BG. Her new record might have written songs on it. She just did okay. one. She's did one since we started the podcast. But okay, anyway. But why was I instantly like, Don Williams' record sucks because he didn't write any of these songs? Um, were they were were they written for him? No, because because Barry Gibb would say he wrote them for Barbara. Okay, that's a good point. right. No, this is the this is the this is the typical like Nashville like you have in your mind where there's a bunch of guys that go into an office and write songs all day. Oh, but we gave um we we talked about um Amy Lou Harris. Didn't she do something similar like play a bunch of songs by other people? Yes, and the record was passably good. That we liked it. 
right? Yes, yes, we did. So maybe I just don't like this record. The reason you don't like it is is it's not so it doesn't have to do with the writing. It has so to do with this, the simpleton kind of straight down the line. It's the kind um, of country I would imagine that not guys chill. that think they're they're. Cowboys, pretend cowboys, mm-hmm. going to work at a construction it, site every morning or listen to because it doesn't challenge you right, at all. Right, it doesn't challenge you in the least. It's not um, – it sounds just enough like Willie and Hank and those guys to be in the same realm, but it's not going to scare you if you're it's, a guy going to work. It's not going to – Right, you couldn't call him outlaw country. No, no. He, he didn't have any edge at all. In fact, if I remember – a lot of the songs are about how much I love you, I think. It kind of like new country I don't now, remember just any these vapid el- topics. But but all that. There's up. no piss and vinegar in I it. I really anywhere. love the song. I believe. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna vote. I'm gonna go thumbs that's down on big, this record. It's a big no too. But and I want to disagree with you, but I, I got nothing for it, man. I felt zero. I was mad even. I, I was, was mad that I had to sit there through eight songs or nine songs, whatever it was. I was mad that all music gave this shitbird five stars, and I have to review it. Yeah, and I'm and I was like, "This is like hootie stuff. This sucks, man." But I'm sure Don Williams is a nice guy, and if you're out there, Don, rest in peace. I Don. love "I Believe in You." It's a song. And, uh, so let it go on the pot. Let's go. Let it go. <laughs> let it be stated on the podcast that I have spoken poorly of the dead twice. <laughs> I'm sorry, Phil um, Ramone and Don Williams. There you go. All right, let's move on. What's the next one, Henry? The next uh, this this record is by a band called Black Flag. They were a punk rock band formed in Hermosa Beach, California. This is officially an EP. It is ex- like six minutes and change long. And what's it called? Jealous again. And this song is called White Minority. That was that was white minority in its entirety, right? All what one, one minute, minute and, and seven seconds. So you and I have some history with this one. Yeah, and and let me real quick just say the before I we get we get just ripped for this. The reason that I put this on the po- uh, the podcast, even though it's not officially a record, an LP, it was supposed supposed to be an LP. But at the end, they cut out five tracks. Now, did they really? Yeah. Now, if I it, didn't read that. If it had been an huh. LP, it still would have only been like fourteen minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember? All right. So I think 
you and I used to go shopping for records together. Yes. And we had gotten the punk bug. Finally, we kind of burned through our REM and everything. We, we started saying, okay, let's start clawing our way back a little bit. Right. Let's look like at records we're supposed to do. And if I remember right, now you correct me if I'm wrong. I remember that on the same trip that we got this record, Jealous Again, we looked at it like, man, this looks scary. This is some scary looking stuff. It's my first scary record. Yeah. And then uh, a little, and then we looked some more and we found uh, Big Black's songs about fucking. Right. Which had the same kind of cover art, maybe the yeah. same artist. Yeah. And so we, and we got it home, but, and I remember playing it. I think the first thing I felt was, oh my God, we got ripped off. This thing's only six minutes long. Did you, I think I felt. Did like you get that? I couldn't even listen to it at first because I was so marveling at it being six minutes long <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that I couldn't couldn't believe it. And then we got through it and we sort of looked at each other. It doesn't I, sound six minutes long. It doesn't. No, it doesn't no. Sound, weirdly enough, it doesn't sound too short. You could say that you got you got through the record, like it said what it said. In you don't the get through song five and go, God damn, that was six minutes. And so here's where here's the rub, like. Maybe I didn't understand it, but when I got to white, this song we just play, White Minority, I, I, I looked at you and I said, is this racist? Or, were they a racist punk band? And you were like, yeah, I guess so. The internet didn't exist what the, back then. What the fuck could we do to look it up? Now it said, now that you read it, people, the, I don't know if it's revisionist history or what, it's but they not. say it's like making fun of those people. Well, and it's also an anti, because the guy singing the song is a Puerto Rican guy. Yeah, yeah. So, Des, is that what his name? Des well, Cadena? No, Des Cadena had actually not joined yet. It's it was Ron Reyes, oh, who they yeah. called whose nickname was Chavo. So Chavo sings a white minority on this record, and really, I guess the reason I originally, when we bought it, thought that white minority was a, a, because a part of my thought about what punk was at that point was skinheads and Nazis. Skinheads were a big thing. At that point, but we had thought like I thought that there was I, I thought they were anti that, and then I seen then I'm like well, then I didn't know, and so then I just put it away as this scary record that I didn't understand. Well, I I I mean I understood the record, I didn't understand why they would sing about that. Right, and then I under, I totally understood it now, and even then, once I went back and looked into it, because uh, neo Nazism was a big part of uh, punk culture in Calif in Southern California. At that time, and they were screaming out against it because they had non-white guys in their band. I'm not saying that Black Flag might not have been skinheads if it wasn't for Chavo, but um, you know, I can't imagine Henry Rollins being in a skinhead band. No, you know, no. So and the and there's songs on there about the harassment that they got by the police. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's. It's one of those things where it's like misinterpreting just because you hear the words white mm-hmm. minority. But uh, but as a record as a whole, I think something I, I didn't realize at the time because it did scare me. That record just scared me. I didn't really listen to it. Seems kind of tame now. But mm-hmm. I'm with you on that. What I love about that record, and I, and I was wanting to talk to you about this, Henry, because I think this is something you talk about a lot, but you maybe haven't ever put your finger on with this record, is there is nothing good about this record in any way musically or any other way you can talk about records except 
raw emotion. Mm-hmm. And they nailed it. Right. It doesn't need to be longer than six minutes. And it doesn't give, I don't give a shit if they can't even play their instruments. Yeah. These guys were masters at getting across fury and rage. And, and, uh, yeah. And, and, and it served its purpose. It was supposed to scare us. It, it did, right? but I, I think it was so interesting that people kind of criticized. I saw a lot of, when I was doing the research, a lot of reviews about people saying, but they can't play. That doesn't matter, yeah. And it was like, but It never was about that It anyway. wasn't about it. It's five screeds about how angry these fucking kids are, which is great. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it's, it's great. And for some reason, you know, I was, I was listening to this. I, I heard the track No Values. And for some reason, it reminded me, and, and you know, I'm a father now. And I look at my daughter and I look at sort of the way that she relates to the world and or at least maybe some of her contemporaries. And I think, isn't that sort of the age old thing with with teenagers and adolescents, you know, and, uh, rejecting everything? Right. Know? And it, it's weird. It, it remained weirdly relevant even now because it speaks. It's it's it drills to the heart of exactly what youth is. Right. And it, you know? I mean, it just. It it spoke, and I think even why it spoke to us in 1991 or two uh-huh. was because we were at the right. That somebody could tell the truth, and we were at the age <laughs> right. that it worked. You know, yeah, your mouth drops, and oh my god, that's that's some truth. Right, it didn't matter if it was if if uh, it was already ten. Years if it was old. poorly recorded, or if you didn't, you know, or if the guy couldn't sing or play, or they couldn't play guitar or whatever. Is it better that? Is it better technically than? The Bee Gees album from earlier this year. I mean, no fucking way. So, I mean, but, you know, this goes to why you should listen to music. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, yeah. It's completely, but I, I, it has a completely different purpose than a Bee Gees record. Yeah. Like those guys wouldn't um, say it was anything but expressing an emotion. Right. Six minutes of expressing an right. emotion. And they did it just as well as whatever the Bee Gees were trying to get across. Some of the uh, other things that I thought were interesting, Henry, about the record, I didn't realize until going back to look at it. Damaged, which was the first, which was the next record, which was the first one with Rollins, was actually their first record. I didn't realize even when we bought this thing that Jealous Again, they only had two EPs out at that point. Yeah. This was their second EP. Now, for me, growing up, I had seen or heard the name Black Flag all over Skater magazines. Yep, yep. There were two bands, Agent Orange and Black Flag, that I'd heard all this stuff about. Now, I wasn't a skater, so it was kind of this mystique that they had. But by the time we bought it, I I thought Jealous Again was like the ninth EP or something. I didn't I mean, know. Well, you thought they were well into it. Yeah, I didn't think yeah. like that we had. It was only it. their third, the, the third record that SST ever did. Right. I, I I didn't know we were going back that far into the mm-hmm. um, L.A. punk scene. Um, so, like I said at the beginning, apparently there was a whole record they were going to do. They cut five of the other tracks because. They did add the other singer, Cadenza, mm-hmm. and he re-recorded the vocals on the others, and they liked what he did so much better. Um, they were going to just re-record the whole album, mm-hmm. but um, then he they went on tour, and they had this huge tour, which turned out to be their biggest tour ever, which I didn't know, and his, <laughs> his throat got sore, so sore from uh, singing the way uh-huh. he had to sing. He said, fuck it, I don't want to be the singer anymore, and that's when they got Rollins. He just wanted to play guitar. And at that point, they were already well into doing damage, so they just cut and took the Shavo tracks that they wanted and made Jealous again. Huh. So I didn't know so that he whole, stayed. Yeah. It, but Cadenza, I think is his name. Des Cadenza. I, I think it's Cadenza or something. Uh, apparently, he, just, he stayed, but he didn't want to sing. Um, 
So I, I you know, some of those songs of are in are in that. And this is touchy, Henry, because there's a what? lot of people out there that are like about Black Flag, as there are people about the Ramones. So we might get some flack on this if oh, you're not sweet. exactly perfect with your Black Flag history. But uh, yes, uh, so they could certainly set me straight. <laughs> and I, I mean, I like Henry Rollins. You know, yeah, you're a big Henry Rollins <laughs> I'm a big fan. Henry Rollins guy, not forever and a day, but I've always casually admired him. So I would say, Henry, for me, I would recommend this, but not really as a must-listen-to if you're trying to figure out the 80s. I would say it's just a must-listen-to. It's really short. If uh, you want to kind of figure out what, uh, to me, punk rock in America, post the New York scene that was right. punk sounds like. Yeah. Is it worth six minutes of your time? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and... Uh, and anybody in the entire world can now pull it up on Spotify and have it directly in their ear holes. You can play the whole thing while you're taking a dump, and actually they would probably prefer you to play the whole thing while you're taking a dump. Moving right along, guess who we're talking about next? Susie and the Banshees. Yes. And what's the record, Henry? Kaleidoscope. And what track are we going to play? We are going to play Christine. first comment on this record henry because i i really i have this record and i really like this record is it's not on fucking apple music that's weird because it is on spotify so i actually had to dust off the old cd and, what did it sound like on cd it's kind of like what you talk about um i had to like adjust my eq and my like it, it didn't Yep. You know my how we're, biggest, we're so used to this remastered mm-hmm. stuff now. Well, I don't think I got a... Re- they apparently have remastered her, uh, Susie and the Banshee's other stuff, like Rapture right, and all that. But if you go back to Kaleidoscope, it's st- it's still... The, the streaming version of it on Spotify, It the drums are, are, are on the top, like hard. Right. And the guitar work you really have to pay attention to to get. Well, that's a bummer because I don't know what you're going to say about this, but for me, this is the best um, Susie and the Banshees record. It's my favorite. I wanted to listen to other records so that I could judge it fairly. I I felt like 
I'll go on record and say I didn't know that much about Susie and the Banshees other than sort of this tangential thing late in their career. And I knew that Robert, I knew vaguely that Robert Smith was in the band for a period of time. Well, let me, let me give you a little backstory. So the reason I played Christine is, and the reason that Robert Smith was in Susie and the Banshees for a hot minute was he, um, his love of that song, Christine. Mm -hmm. So he's always, he's often cited that. They, that song actually kind of got stuck with the label of the uh, goth, like kind of threw Susie and the Banshees in that goth thing. Mm-hmm. And she always said that that song was kind of like um, albatross around their neck because people expected them to keep going more like mm-hmm. goth and that she never really saw themselves as goth. She said she you know, obviously come from punk. Mm-hmm. Um, the neat thing to me about Kaleidoscope is if you listen to the record before it, there's two records before it. This is their third record. This record clearly exemplifies the difference in punk music and post-punk music. Yeah. And the reason for that, I think, is, and I think Henry might hate this reasoning, is musicianship. So after their first two records, which sound very punk, the guitar player and the drummer left. And they got a new drummer and a new guitar player. And their new drummer, who was named Budgie, one of my favorite mm-hmm. um, yep. names, is so good and the difference in the drumming on the first two records in this one are so night and day i really think that's the whole difference in why this is post-punk because it's um so much better and it made me think about another drummer that we liked a lot or a lot of a band we liked a lot i remember that the clash took a lot of slack from going from being a punk band to all of a sudden doing all doing other kinds of stuff yeah like by rock the casbah and it was Mm -hmm. because topper hedden was a Fucking, he was way too good to be called a punk drummer. Right. Like he started doing reggae beats and like yep. two four time and shit that punk rock didn't do, and it made the class sound like a, a, a real. Plus, band. they were mic'd well. The, the drums were mic'd just right. Well, that's what I was. I was hating you heard a bad version of this. Well, it's the, the. I don't know if it's the bad version. I just I felt like the guitars were too thin. And here's something I'll say, like when it to, when when it comes to like post punk music. I think I took cues from bands that had already digested Susie and the Banshees. Susie and the Banshees. Right. And so, you know, like when I listen to these podcast reviews, I'm coming at it from the perspective of a guy today who has listened to a lot of that other kinds of music and didn't have the benefit of knowing Kaleidoscope was probably the first incendiary steps in this direction. Right. I, I Somebody think, like Johnny Marr looked at Kaleidoscope and went, oh, shit. Yeah, I think you I know? had that trouble with the uh, Robin Hitchcock record that we reviewed uh, a couple yeah. months back. Yeah. I'd already I'd already digested all the shit after it, and I was like, oh, um, acid, psych, psych, acid. Yeah, yeah, like, like, like been there, done that. Done that, heard that, yeah. I wanted to get into it a little bit harder with you, a little further about, uh-huh. do you remember the band, we used to see this in the tape, you remember those tape sections like at Record Bar where they had the cutouts mm-hmm. that were like a dollar? Mm-hmm. There were two bands that I would see all the time. We probably bought them over and over just because they were like a quarter. Cheap. cheap. Wire yeah. uh-huh. and Magazine. Oh, man. So, <laughs> I thought about that in a long time. I know. I haven't thought about Magazine in a long well, time. Well, it was interesting because you said the way you would describe the guitars on this record before. Yeah. The guitar player that joined was the guy from Magazine. Really? And Magazine and Wire to me sound like that thin. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like they're trying to start doing an affected guitar thing, but it's this real shrill kind of. Yep. And that's what this guy's guitar sounds like. But it, when I go back, when I went back to listen to Kaleidoscope, I was like, 
oh yeah, that's the dude from magazine. I don't know why I didn't put it together at the time because it's that same tone. You know what I mean? That, uh-huh. that weird guitar tone from it's punk, but it's starting to add a little bit to it. You know, trying to be a a little something. But and every song is really different. That's the other weird thing that? she said about this record. I, I found a quote where she said she she thought this band was so good when they got when they finally got together for Kaleidoscope mm-hmm. that she may have let it go in too many different directions because she said it it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have a cohesive feel. But she said she was so um, amazed to have a palette like that after coming out of just a punk rock thing adding these two new guys that they kind of went scattershot all over the place. And back then, you know, when they were using real camera clicks on red light, that was a big deal back then. Right. (laughs) You know, to do that. Right. Um, Actually recording the sound of a camera click. Yeah. And maybe that wasn't, you know, maybe today that just seems like table stakes. Like, of course you're going to, you know, if you want to do that. Right. You know, we live in a world that can cut and paste and put, anything anywhere uh and and like use found sounds to make rhythmic tracks but 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 i would say and and i would definitely recommend this record i guess it's my first one i'm really recommending uh, of the podcast i would say if you if you are into and i think henry's one of these guys what if you're into post-punk music or even if you're into bands that came along like I think I'm turning Japanese. I think I'm, you know, the kind of stuff yeah. that became '80s lexicon stuff. Uh-huh. They, this, this is what started that. Yeah, those if, bands if were you think making that, a more commercial version of that. Right. If you think that um, the Cure's Disintegration is the best record ever, which it is, then you should go back and listen to this record. Yeah, you can definitely hear the a, origins of it, and yeah, not no to say doubt. that disintegration is not better. But I'm not saying that. Right, I'm you, saying that if you if you listen to that and bow down to it like I do, then you owe it to yourself to to trace it back to to this record. Which I, I honestly I have to tell you, I knew it existed, but had not given it a listen in the in the context of history. Kaleidoscope when it came out. I know I I never heard of it. I didn't hear of it until like 1990. <laughs> this next record, until 1984, when I actually started uh, what I think is my musical journey, this was my fucking record. Ladies and gentlemen, ACDC, back, back in, in black. black.
Okay, so Henry, unequivocally, until I discovered anything else in 1984, I think is where I started to branch out, maybe the police or some other band. Yeah. ACDC was, I probably listened to Back in Black. Even now, if I kept a total stats running, I think I listened to it so much as a kid that it's probably still in the top five records that I've listened How to. How weird time. is that? Like, I, I didn't appreciate it till much later because everybody told me it was the devil's music. Right? That's, was, that was my first. That was the beautiful thing about I it, right? I loved it, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> but I was already on the ACDC train with Highway to Hell because I mean, like, of course they that. And I knew all that's just from being around. What is it about this band? I but think you say me years first. Well, I think at the time it had all the elements, so it was it was supposed to be uh, evil. Uh huh. It rocked your nuts off, right? It wasn't really heavy metal. That's what I didn't realize at the time. Yeah, but I, I want to say now it, this thing this thing is just like a rock record. It, it even shocks me when people say, I, I read all these things doing the research about how it's one of the top 10 metal records of all time. I don't even think ACDC's metal, but I see how it appeals to metal people. It appeals to rock people, and I can see how punk people would like ACDC. That's the thing. This thing They is hated punk rock. Fucking universal. They hated being considered punk rock, but they also didn't like heavy metal. Like, they considered themselves a rock and roll band. Right. And Straight I'll tell up. you, I'll tell you the other, the other secret to this. And Highway to Hell is the same way. That fucking Mutt Lang guy, dude. I mean, say what you will. There's a reason. There's a reason <laughs> that Def Leppard was such a great dialed in that sound perfect. But Mutt Lang, yeah. that guy knows how to, how to do guitars. And as an ACDC fan, they changed when they got to Highway to Hell. They stopped sounding like a bar band. Scratching around, they got Angus right. They they became this big, thick fucking rock band. Right. So they they have Highway to Hell, and Bon Scott, uh, in February of nineteen eighty. Yeah. Uh, overdoses on alcohol. By the way, there's some questions surrounding his death that people think about, but the official I mean, line I, is he I, drank I, himself. But day. I hate to say overdose because really he did what any of us could have done. He, he, he got so wasted. He passed out and they put him in the back seat of one of his buddies and car on his vomit. While And then they yeah. went back into the party and he just choked on his vomit. It wasn't like he decided to mainline alcohol yeah. and overdose. I mean, it still sucks, but so, so it, AC, the other funny thing is too, if, if you're an ACDC nut was, they they fucking up. They were like seventy year old men at this point. They fucking abhorred drugs. They thought drugs were for fucking idiots. They, Did they were, really? They were just all like serious alcoholics. They were just <laughs> like drugs are stupid because we all drink like fucking, we drink like old men. They're at the Australian pub. man. I know, but they those just, guys. I love that they drank. Like Australian said, people loved. They drink. didn't like punk rock. And they didn't like. No, they're the, cantankerous as hell. And they would have, dude. They were not. ACDC wasn't on Spotify for years. Right. I mean, they, they were not. They wouldn't go streaming. They forever. really should be my dad's favorite band. Okay. They're, they're like conservative. Their producer married Shania Twain. They <laughs> they abhorred drugs. They just drank like fish, and they thought punk rock was stupid. Right. So they're so hardcore that. But they have the funeral and immediately start looking for a new singer. Yes. And Mutt Lang suggests this guy, Brian Johnson. If And looking at it from the outside, I don't know 
that any other band has pulled off a successful lead singer change and done a an excellent record top to bottom in in, well, in well, reaction. Well, let's right? let's like, let's step back a second because uh, if you're not an ACDC head, I mean, they had this is record number seven. Okay, right, right. They had six records before this. There were a lot of people that were like. Bond Scott is irreplaceable. Bond like, Scott or die. Yeah, Bond right. Scott was ACDC. Well, that's kind of where I'm going with this. And then, and then here's the here's the kicker, which is what you just said. Not only did they replace him, they replaced him like a month right. after he fucking kicked it, and they basically busted out an all time great record. Right. Not like even in in fact, it's the high water mark of the Brian Johnson. Like it doesn't get any better than Back in Black. Yeah. I mean that this is it. This is the best. But it's better than any of the Bon Scott records too. It, and here's the thing: he Bon Scott had lyrics already ready to go for these songs, right? And they, being as hardcore as they are, said, "No, we don't want to capitalize on what he did." So Brian um, Johnson well, and, writes the writes the lyrics. And for I thought these it was songs. awesome. But but like Back in Black is about Bon Scott. I mean, it's a you know. Puts the perfect hint of a tribute to the old guy in, but also doesn't make you, when you're listening to it, be all bummed out the whole time going. I mean, I can remember as a kid, I wasn't listening to it going, I'm so sad about Bon Scott. I was just listening to it going, this is fucking kicking my ass. But it, it's also a tribute to Bon Scott. It's great, you know? Yeah. It struck all the perfect chords for that. Now, also, it's kind of weird because I don't understand why extreme metalheads like it because to me it's not a metal record. I also don't understand why regular rock pop people like it because it's really too heavy to be rock. It's so weird how it rides all these different lines. I guess, I mean, I don't listen to radio much. Do they play it on classic rock radio now? I don't know. I don't think, I don't remember when we were even listening to classic rock radio that they played it that much. Well, we live in the Bible Belt. I bet you there was some prohibition on right. because they thought they were it was actual devil you know used to say it was the anti-christ devil's club or well, something like well, that. well i had to look it up just to just to put some context on this thing uh-huh. this this fucker as of 2017 is 22 times platinum in the united God states damn. alone God that's 22 million records and it's 26 times platinum worldwide so it's sold over 200 and, or 26 million copies i read that depending on who you ask it is the second best-selling album of all time, or the re- the one I saw was the third. But who's quibbling here? Right, right. right. Come I mean, on. But I, the other the other interesting fact, Henry, and this is something that I learned doing my research. But I remember this as a kid. I thought this record, and I always couldn't figure it out in my mind. I thought this record came out before Dirty Deeds. Did you really? And the reason for that is, I'm doing my research, this record sold so well when it came out in the U.S., they re-released Dirty Deeds in the United States after oh. it, and Dirty Deeds went platinum after Back in Black. I thought it came out after Back in Black, because I went and bought it. I had not even seen it before Back in Black came out, and I was kind of a fan. But But to me, Dirty Deeds sounds like the mid-80s, as opposed to late 70s because I was listening to it in the mid 80s. I read early on that there was a lot of back and forth with ACDC about when they when he started with the schoolboy outfit. Right. And all that. Right. That's in the uh, that's in the um 
behind the music or whatever. There's nobody like those guys. No, they are one of a kind. But they're one of a kind in the same way that your weird uncle is one of a kind. You know what I mean? Yeah. I would say it's, a decent, give them it's that. a decent rock record. Yeah, it's good. You got to give them that. I'm man. definitely going to make it a. I'm going to make it a recommend. I mean, you can't. Yeah. You can't not. It is a classic. It will make the top ten. You know, if you're going a full tour of the 1980s, you can't not listen to back. There's no filler on this record. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> New filler. This thing is. Which is weird. This thing it's defines. Fucking lean and mean. It all, is fucking all, lean and mean. All killer, no filler. All killer, no filler. It's just riff after riff after riff after riff. It's just... Every song just digs in. It's there. And go. Rock and roll ain't noise pollution. Oh, that was my favorite as a kid. I would play that when my mom would piss me off. It's a, it's all hit. The worst song on here is Let Me Put My Love Into You and It's Great. And it's awesome. <laughs> Was there any backmasking on this thing? I don't know. We have to talk about but it. But you know what? You know, you, you get the distinction. Like I always felt like those other records were they were they were trying to say they're they're trying to convince me to be a devil worshiper. Uh-huh. Like devil worshiping is the way to go. These motherfuckers were just like, I'm going, I'm going to hell because I do all the shit that you do in the hell. I'm going. <laughs> Well, good on them, man. Yeah, good on them. Yeah. I mean, so, yep. Uh, if you're a human being, you've heard this record. I probably don't have to tell you to watch. So let's do it anyway. <laughs> so, Henry, what's going to be your uh, pick of the month? Okay, my pick of the month this month, I'm going to pick uh, Jealous Again by Black Flag just to be cantankerous because I feel like people owe it to themselves to listen to it. Okay, and I was going to pick Kaleidoscope because I thought for sure Henry would pick Back in Black. <laughs> but I feel like there's I mean, no way we can not pick. Somebody can't say "Back in Black" is not the pick of the month. Come on, dude. So I'm going to go. Get with, it. I'm going to go with ACDC "Back in Get Black" it. as the pick of the month. Although, man, you really owe it to yourself to listen to Kaleidoscope too. But <laughs> yeah. But come on, "Back in Black" is my pick of the month. All right, there we Another are. Another month. Done August. Another month down the drain. Next month we will be. Do we announce our records? Previous. I think we've announced a couple um, of times to preview it. I will tell you this. September is a double month, so it's a two-episode month. There's ten records, I believe, from uh, September that we're going to cover. Dude, we're going to listen to George Jones, Tom Waits, The Dead Kennedys, Kate Bush, Simple Minds. And that's just half. we got some work ahead of us, man, for yeah, September. Se- September's a biggie. Scott Damati knows. Well, if you like our show or you like the records we're choosing, we really appreciate if you would rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you might listen uh, to the pod. Um, you can all, like I said, you can listen to us on iTunes and Spotify, Stitcher. Share it with your friends. You can chat us up on Twitter at Eighties Exposed or Eighties Music Exposed at Gmail dot com. What else, Chris? Definitely hit us up if there's a record that you wanted covered that we haven't covered yet in 1980 prior to September. You might be interested in our sister pod. It's been well underway since uh, last year. We're about to, uh, we've probably already gone past our first full year over there, right? We have. It's called the No GD Band Podcast. We're a little more current, a little less wistful, maybe a little less professional, but we'll talk a little bit more about current music, current events of the day, and get off topic and run it into the ground. Any saved rounds, Chris? Nope. Guess what? What? I made you a mixtape. <laughs>